Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I don't know how you think of the church. Maybe you think of it just as a sort of a, a prep rally or a, uh, some sort of therapy session. Maybe you think of it as an entertainment center or whatever. But I, I often think of the church like a greenhouse, a, a place where you want to see the right kind of environment for people to grow. And it takes the right balance of whatever it might be, sunlight and, and uh, water and, and nutrients and protection from whatever elements might be on the outside, the right balance of all those elements to facilitate spiritual growth within the local body of Christ. And there are people who have experienced frustration through the years because they want that kind of spiritual growth, but... But they've planted themselves, not in a greenhouse, they've planted themselves somewhere in a desert, or they've planted themselves somewhere in a swamp, and they wonder why they're drying up, or they wonder why they are sickly as they are, and it's because they haven't been in the right kind of environment. They haven't been in the right balance of all of those necessary elements that accommodate spiritual growth. Well, we've been looking at a passage here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that is really about that balance. It's about all of those elements that facilitate spiritual growth within the body of Christ. And Paul is writing this to a church in Thessalonica that he had spent just three months with, and he had been run out of town, and now he has been a few months away, and he's burdened, and he's worried about the church. He wants to know that what the Lord had begun in them, will progress and will continue. And so he writes this letter to them to address a number of issues, but he, he ends the letter with this long list of imperatives, sort of staccato fashion, just drilling them one after another, but reminders to them of what is their responsibility what they need to do if they want to continue to experience the kind of spiritual growth that they experienced from the very beginning of their Christian life. And he gives it to us here in, in as I said, these short and, uh, and direct statements, uh, a formula, a, a list of the kind of elements that create a spiritual or a culture for spiritual growth within the church. And we, uh, we've gotten into this beginning to understand some of what he says, some of the complexity of everything that he says, what creates this culture, and it's probably not what you think. It, it probably isn't just uh, one or two things. That's the way most people might approach it. They, they think about their spiritual life. They might think about how God has worked within them. They might think about a single person. They might think about a single event. They might think about a single ministry. And they become convinced that if every person could just experience what they experienced, if every person could just maybe read the book that they read or, 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 or go through the ministry that they went through or read the discipleship material that they read, if, they just, if everyone could do that one thing, then everyone would experience spiritual growth the way that you've experienced it. But the reality is that ministry can't be approached with such monotones. It isn't a simple formula. It isn't a single ingredient. 
If you gave everyone a single dose of this or make them sit through this one class or get them to follow this one habit or comply with this one rule, if you do that, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to be all right. Ministry, spiritual growth, a culture that facilitates spiritual growth is more complex than that. It, it includes a number of different things. It's like that greenhouse where you have to have the balance of all of the things going on to see the kind of spiritual growth taking place around that you, you want to see happen. The reason for that is because in a church of any size, there are all kinds of people. There are people of all range of spiritual maturity and all kinds of backgrounds. There are those who were raised in Christian homes and those who weren't. There are those who have more deep-seated habits before they come to know Christ and those who don't. There are those who are in struggling marriages. There are those who are struggling with their, uh, with their parenting, those who are struggling with their parents. There are those who are in difficult jobs and difficult health situations. There's all kinds of situations. And in every church, you're going to have that. You're going to have the weak. You're going to have the faint-hearted. You're going to have the unruly, the disorderly, the quarrelsome, the timid, the fearful, the fragile, the needy. And so you can't have one single formula, one single focus. You've got to have the whole balance of everything. So as you approach your ministry, you approach involvement in the body of Christ, what you need to recognize is the multiplicity of challenges that will face each one of us as we try to minister to others. And therefore, we need to be prepared to fulfill multiple roles, multiple responsibilities. Opportunities for spiritual growth happen all around you. You just need to recognize that the kind of environment where it happens may not be the one that you first dreamed up. Or another more direct way to say this is that spiritual growth happens in the context of problem people. It isn't just the people that you're around who are just like you. It isn't just the people who who happen to identify with your story and your experience. Spiritual growth happens, but sometimes it happens in ways that you weren't expecting problems that you weren't expecting. Difficult people who are presenting you with challenges in their own spiritual life that are inconveniencing you. But you need to be prepared to meet those challenges. And so we recognize that we, 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 we come into an environment in a spiritual church, we come into an environment, I should say, for spiritual growth within a church with all of these people around us. And, and, and we might imagine that everything would be better and we would all be happier and everyone would be vibrant and everything would go well. We might imagine that it would all be so much better if everyone just sort of fit into a single mold, but that's not reality. And Paul understands that. And so as he writes to this church and he gives them a list of, of commandments and a list of imperatives, it is a long list, 15 different imperatives and, and statements that he gives to the church here. I, I didn't look at it this week, but maybe the longest list of imperatives that you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. It certainly has to rank up there with any of the others. But a, a laundry list of things that the church is responsible to do, that you are responsible to do. And these aren't tasks for someone else. These are tasks for you, responsibilities for you to understand. If you're going to 
help contribute to an environment of spiritual growth. And so what we find here is a prescription that spans the, the, the entire spectrum of all the challenging ministry situations that come into every church. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach, but it is an approach that accommodates different people, different scenarios, different approaches, at times gentle, at times unsettling, but in every case recognizing that God has called you to be involved with one another's lives in all of these multiple ways to generate spiritual growth. Now, we've been working through this and looking at each one of these, and so far in the first couple of weeks, just, just right off the top, talking about the first two, which had to do with leadership, had to do with identifying right, right leaders and esteeming those leaders in the, in the right kind of way. But now we need to recognize that of the 15, we've dealt with those first two, we need to recognize that no church will get very far simply on good leadership. At some point, the people in the pew, the people in the chairs, the people who are a part of the congregation, they have to take ownership of the ministry. They have to understand that the leaders are not there to do all of the difficult things. They are not there to do all of the ministry. The pattern that's laid out in Ephesians is that God gives shepherds and teachers to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So leaders are given to equip you with all the various tasks of the ministry that are be taken up by you in the hope that a spiritual a culture of spiritual growth will be fostered and will be fruitful. And Paul gives us in this passage, I think, a really good look at what that is, what it's supposed to look like, how it works itself out in the context of the life of ministry. And this morning, we're looking particularly at verse 14 and, and what we might call the, the problem people, the unruly, the weak, the faint-hearted, the... the uh, the ones who try us in every way and how that works itself out in our responsibilities. Before I do that, let me just sort of read this passage for us again so we can get the flow of the, of the entire text and the context for us. Paul says in verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. These 15 commandments that that create a culture of growth that Paul lays out for us here. We've already mentioned, as I said, the first two, the responsibility to identify leaders according to their labor and the responsibility to esteem those leaders for their work. And then the third imperative, which really is linked to that, the, the whole idea of not grumbling against those who labor among you when Paul tells us to maintain peace among ourselves. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Now, 
As Paul says that, he may have realized that in this call to peace, there's going to be all kinds of challenges. That some people might even hear that call to peace and misinterpret it as maybe a a call to go along or get along to go along. I forget how it goes. Get along, go along, go along to get along, get along to go along. But basically, some people hear that sometimes. They hear that call to maintain peace, and they assume it means appeasement. That you never say the hard things that need to be said. That you never have the difficult conversations. That you never point out the weaknesses or the sins of others. And maybe they've observed in their life that that when you do that, it creates a disruption sometimes. It creates, a, it creates an upheaval. And they just assume that that's the opposite of peacemaking. That so often takes place in people's minds that when there's a strain in some relationship, when there's a, an upheaval of some sort, they, they just look for the epicenter of that, whoever it was that might have said something difficult or maybe issued some sort of warning and and they, they just think, you know, if we could just do away with all of that, then we would have peace. But, but maybe that's why Paul adds for us in verse 14 a fourth responsibility, a fourth command that creates a culture of spiritual growth. And this has specifically to do with your responsibility to admonish the unruly. Your responsibility to admonish the unruly. That's his simple command in the first part of verse 14. Admonish, or as your Bible might say, admonish the idle. Admonish the undisciplined. The word for idle literally is a a word for those who are out of line, those who are out of place, or those who are out of order. It was used particularly in the military to speak of people who who broke rank, they they broke line, or even beyond that, they became insubordinate in their overall duties. This is a word that was applied to them. And so they were mutinous in some way, or they were unruly in some way, And so it has that basic idea of being disorderly. That's why you see in all of the older Bible translations, it was uh, usually translated something like that, someone who was unruly. But since the 1950s, modern versions have begun to prefer the word idle because translators believe that as Paul uses this word, He specifically has in mind those people who are disorderly by way of not working. And it may very well be the case that over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6, a passage we've already looked at a couple times, but Paul sort of wraps this stuff together. He says in 2 Thessalonians 3, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accordance with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And it's not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. 
But even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So this was a problem in the church. Paul would eventually come back and address it in 2 Thessalonians. But even in 1 Thessalonians, you may remember when we were in chapter 4, we looked at it in verse 11 and 12, where Paul had already addressed this when he told the church, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your own hands, as we instructed you, that you might walk properly or orderly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So this was an issue that that spanned really both letters and, and was something that Paul had to address both times. There were people in the church who were imposing on others, expecting other people to bear the burden of their needs when they themselves had the capability to do what was necessary to, to provide for themselves. And we don't know why this was. There's no elaboration on, on the motives behind this, We know that sometimes people are simply undisciplined. In their hearts, they intend no malice. They don't want to necessarily be a burden, but they simply have not trained themselves to make wise choices with their finances or with their time. And so they end up frittering away opportunities, frittering away their funds, and frittering away their time on useless and empty pursuits. And so sometimes... We just need to come alongside of them. We need to uh, bring maybe an older man, an older woman alongside of them and talk to them about the long-term consequences of the short-term foolishness that they're showing. So sometimes it's just that. They're just undisciplined people. Sometimes people end up imposing on others because of pride. They simply believe that they are above certain kinds of work. And so they, they claim that they're willing to work, but they pass on so many jobs that are available to them because in their minds that is beneath them. They've sort of locked themselves into some other realm, maybe some professional realm of work, and they don't want to do manual labor or labor that would inconvenience them. It's not worth their time they sometimes would say, to actually go and do some jobs. I've, I've talked to people like that. They're out of work and they're, they're becoming a burden to others and you go talk to them and you say, well, I mean, I'm see- I look all around. I see, you know, help wanted jobs, help wanted signs everywhere. Oh, yeah, yeah, but I mean, I, I, mean, I, I actually would lose money by doing that. I've had people tell me that. Lose money. Oh, yeah, because I'm worth, you know, so much per hour and so for me to go do that job, it would actually be losing money. I, that's, I don't always understand how people get there, but that's the way they are. It's pride. They have just simply pictured themselves above where they really are. They think too highly of themselves. And so they need someone to come alongside of them and explain to them how they need to work to provide for their family. And they need to challenge themselves to test their perceived value. If they go to work in some environment... Even if they begin at the bottom, if they really are as valuable as they think, they'll be recognized. It'll be demonstrated soon enough. They'll be advanced in the company soon enough. But whatever the reason for this 
idleness, Paul told them in 2 Thessalonians 3, very specifically, these people need to be rebuked for that. And it was a significant issue in Thessalonica for whatever reason. Now, Paul could very well have that in mind here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That could be who he has in mind that needs to be admonished. People who are being idle and not working. But the word itself is actually much broader than that. Bauer, Donker, and Gingrich, a well-known lexicon, actually says that to translate this word idle does not take into account, they say, quote, the Greco-Roman history of the word. In other words, it's not really clear why people translate this idle. That's not the meaning of the word. The meaning of the word is undisciplined, unruly. Those people who get out of line, those people who, who revolt in some way against the teaching, the clear teaching of Scripture. And it's certainly true in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul talks about those who are idle and not doing according to the tradition that you receive from us. So idleness would be just one example of that. But those who are undisciplined, those who are unruly, they could be disruptive in any way. And basically they need to be admonished, they need to be corrected, they don't need to be pacified, they don't need to be appeased in their behavior. As Calvin says, quote, the term admonition is used to mean sharp reproof, such as that which may bring them back into the right way, for they, deserve, they are deserving of greater severity, and they cannot be brought to repentance by any other remedy, end quote. Now, there are some people who just can't accept that. They don't believe that. They don't accept the fact that, that sharp rebuke is a, an appropriate means with some people, or appropriate means even for spiritual growth. Their method of dealing with disruptive people is to pacify them, to soothe them, to, to continually try to woo them with soft words and gentle tones. They believe that if you could just avoid upsetting people, then eventually everyone will just get along. But what Paul's calling for is completely different. He's calling for sharp rebuke, correction, warning, even to the point where it may eventually lead to a disruption, a breaking. Of fellowship. In fact, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3 with some of these idle people, he says you're, you're to rebuke them and if they don't listen, have nothing to do with them. Don't associate with them. I mean, that's, that's hard for the modern mind to, to comprehend. I mean, this seems like the most callous and most, and, and most uh, uh, unfeeling, insensitive thing that any spiritual leadership could ever say that you're actually supposed to take someone who doesn't have enough food to live on and you're to rebuke them and if they don't respond, you're to to disassociate with them. Harsh. That's what you would be called if that was the pathway you took. But Paul understood, as Calvin would later understand, that for some people who are unruly and disruptive, they 
cannot be brought to repentance by any other remedy. And for you to take a pathway that creates spiritual growth, you've got to be willing to do that. To appease that, to, 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 to just try to pacify that within any congregation, is to allow the swamp waters of undisciplined and ungodly un, um, pathways to begin to seep into the greenhouse of God's church. So for any church to, to foster a culture of spiritual growth, it has to be willing to admonish those who step out of line. When they break rank, when they reject the clear teaching of Scripture, when they go down a pathway of pride or immaturity or whatever, they need to be admonished. This was the way that Paul defined his own faithfulness to the Ephesian elders over in Acts chapter 20. Whenever he was passing through and, and, and he knew that he would no longer see this church. And he gathers them together at Miletus, the elders of the church. And he reminds them in Acts 2.27, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then a few verses later, he says, therefore, be on the alert, remembering that for three years, I didn't cease night and day to admonish you with tears. Paul says, you can't remember my ministry. What is it that fostered the kind of spiritual growth that got the church to where it is? What is it that created that kind of environment? Because you've got to own it now. You need to own it. I'm going on my way, and you need to remember that I didn't shrink back. I didn't, I didn't recoil from speaking everything that I had to speak, that I was supposed to speak, which included admonishment to you. He knew that there would be a time when, as he says in verse 30, from among yourselves men will arise speaking twisted things and drawing disciples after themselves. He knew that was coming, and so he told them, you can't shrink back. When those times arise, when those people show up, you can't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Sure, the promises and the blessings, but also the warnings and the rebukes. And so this is essentially what he's calling you to do in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Don't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Be willing to admonish when you need to admonish. Because if you don't, you will inhibit a culture of spiritual growth within the church. You might think that you're facilitating it. You might think that you're being peaceful, but you're actually inhibiting it. You're impeding it because you become too concerned about everyone liking you. You don't want anyone to think ill of you, and so you fail to speak the whole counsel of God. But if a church is ever going to really have a culture of spiritual growth, it has to create a culture of accountability. It has to create a culture where people do not shrink back. They don't shrink back from speaking the truth. They're willing to admonish. They're willing to challenge. They're willing to be disliked if necessary. Because they want to be an instrument. Not that pacifies rebellion, but one that produces spiritual growth. 
Well, Paul then adds a fifth responsibility that helps us create this culture of spiritual growth, and you can add it to your list there in verse 14, another one, your responsibility to encourage the faint-hearted. This is his second imperative there, encourage the faint-hearted, which basically are those who are discouraged, those who are losing heart, those who are temporarily overwhelmed by, by circumstances or some battle that they're in or some stress of life that they're having. The word literally means small-souled. They've lost their spirit. They're not willing to go on in whatever they're in. They're shrinking back or shriveling up on the inside. And for whatever reason, they're, they're flinching, they're cringing, they're withdrawing. Perhaps they're just overwhelmed with what's going on and feeling incredibly inadequate for the, the, the challenge and the trial that they're facing or the obstacle that, that's in front of them and they're battling uncertainty, they're battling doubt about God's love and about God's calling in their life. And so what Paul wants you to do is he wants you to encourage them. And you respond to them very differently than you do to the unruly. You respond to them according to their situation. What they need is not rebuke. What they need is assurance. What they need is encouragement. It's like our Savior, who Isaiah tells us, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. These are the people who are walking around you all the time and their, their wick is just flickering in the smallest of ways. And you don't want to be the person who snuffs that out. You want to come alongside of them and present the word of truth in a way that doesn't crush their already crushed spirit. Like the Apostle Paul, when he said to even the Thessalonians back in chapter 2, he says he was like a gentle mother or or like a nursing mother. He was gentle, taking care of, of her own children. That's the way he approached his ministry. He understood that in order to foster spiritual growth, that's the way that you had to approach certain situations and certain people. You, you, had to, you had to bear up with a sort of sensitive spirit for these faint-hearted people. You couldn't expect to just gather together with the fearless and the daring and the confident folks. That might be the kind of group that you like to be around. The self-confident people, they inspire you, they make you feel good, and so you just, you just want to clear the room of all the problem people, all the faint-hearted, all the, the folks who are just flickering, and you want to gather around you those people that, that, that you want to be like, that, that challenge you, but Paul's telling you, you can't do that. You have got to develop a sensitivity for the faint-hearted, for the flinching, for the discouraged, and you've got to focus your attention on encouraging them. Well, how are you going to do that? First of all, you've got to give them hope. I mean, these are people who basically have lost hope. They feel like they're in a hopeless situation, and so they become faint-hearted. And you've got to come alongside of them and minister to them hope, which is one of the great doctrines of the New Testament, right? Faith, hope, and love, those three uh, virtues that, that stand so prominently in the New Testament. We've got to minister hope to them, which is really a, a wonderful New Testament doctrine, vast. We can't fully develop it, but let me just summarize hope for you. Hope comes from Seeing sin as sin 
and from seeing the Savior in His grace. That's where hope comes from. It comes from seeing sin as sin and seeing the full scope of the grace of our Savior. In other words, when you are encountering someone who is faint-hearted, so many times their problem is they're not thinking about their, their problems properly. They may think that they're a victim of some circumstance, a victim of things that are completely out of their control rather than looking at themselves as someone who has broken God's commands and needs God's forgiveness and restoration. They don't want to admit that so many of their problems are of their own making, their own decisions, whether in the near term or in the far history, somewhere early on in their life, they made a decision, they're facing the consequences or whatever it might be. And what they need to understand is the clear pathway to forgiveness, which is the pathway of understanding sin as sin. But if you can orient them to the truth about sin, then you can present them with genuine hope of a Savior who forgives and restores. It's that simple. And so they go suddenly from being hopelessly dictated by these circumstances out of their control to one who's having hope because they see that they serve under a God of grace who forgives and restores. In addition to that, you might not only minister hope to them, but just simply remind them of God's mercy, that God has already shown them so much mercy. And he'll continue to do so. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, having a ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now he says that, and he turns around and he says, that is in fact, uh, that, that is in spite of the fact that they, he spent his life being falsely accused of trickery and deception, of being afflicted, of being perplexed, of being persecuted, of being struck down, and yet he wasn't destroyed. He didn't lose heart because he constantly was reflecting on the mercy of God. He remembered Isaiah, that he, that is God, gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, but young men and young men shall be exhausted. But those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. He reminded himself of God's mercy in all of those things. And so that's one of our jobs. Remind people of God's mercy, that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Remind them that God is holy and and dwells on high, he inhabits eternity. But as the psalmist says, he says, I, I also dwell in a high and holy place, but with the one who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly. Remind them of the God of mercy. So you have that responsibility to the faint-hearted. There's a sixth responsibility that helps create a culture of growth, not only with how you deal with the unruly, not only with the faint-hearted, but also with the weak. Paul says your responsibility is to help the weak. Help those who do not have the resources in themselves to help themselves. These are the weak. They are the ones who, if the faint-hearted are the hopeless, these are the helpless. 
And he might be referring to material resources. He might be talking about physical resources. They might be weak just financially. They might be weak physically. They might even be weak spiritually, which is probably the the way that Paul uses this word most of all throughout the New Testament. Spiritually weak people. Those who are, we might say, spiritually immature. They are weak in the sense that they don't, uh, they don't fully appropriate all the spiritual resources God has given to them. And so it should go without saying that if you're going to have a culture of spiritual growth within a church, you have to have a place that accommodates spiritually weak people. You have to have a place that accommodates folks who still need to grow in many ways. You have to have a willingness to share of your time and your resources to invest in those who still need to grow much. And it can be taxing, it can be wearisome to be around these kinds of people. It can be draining. When you're already battling whatever you're battling, you've got your own challenges in your own life, and then someone comes along to you on a Sunday morning or in midweek, they call you up, they've got some need, and they... They're in some sort of tailspin over a a particular issue. They're all upset because they're struggling with something in their Christian life, which in your mind is basic. Or they're wrestling with some point of theology that you locked down so long ago, you can't understand why they can't see it so clearly. Or they're upset in some issue of their conscience. Their conscience is weak, and so they're just beaten down with a sense of guilt and anguish over some regret. They're weak. And they come to you at some point when you're stretched to your limits already in your time and in your schedule, and they want to take their burdens and lop them on top of the burdens that you already have. And what does Paul say? You have to help them. You have to help the weak. Why? Because that's what your Savior does. Because he said, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Because this is your opportunity to be like him. This is your opportunity to grow in your own way. By being conformed more to the image of your Savior. Giving freely of your time. Laying your life down. Having your schedule inconvenienced. And never giving any of these weak brothers and sisters, the idea that they are unwanted, despised, forgotten in the midst of the congregation. I mean, it's already most difficult for them. They show up in a, a place and they look around, they see all kinds of mature Christians. They already feel a little bit uncomfortable, but they found you, you gave them a listening ear at one point and they were helped and they come back and they want to grow and they, they attach themselves to you And you begin to look at it like an annoyance rather than an opportunity. You have to help the weak. Weak spiritually. Weak physically. Those who would burden your time because you would have to spend so much extra time going to be with them and visit them because they're physically weak. They have some illness materially weak, 
so that they become a drain on your resources trying to help them. But that's what you're called to do. That's what, that's what fosters spiritual growth within a church. This is the kind of environment it takes. And then finally, in this verse, Paul says your responsibility to be patient with everyone. That's what creates a, an environment of spiritual growth. Is it imperative? Yeah, you got all these people. You got the unruly people. You have the faint-hearted people. You have the weak people. But you have the responsibility to be patient with all of them. That's simply what it takes. It takes patience. It takes a bunch of people who are willing to be imposed upon. It takes a bunch of people to bear up with that kind of patience and to continue to respond with the right response, the gentleness where necessary, the willingness to say the difficult things when necessary, not to be, not to be uh, unnecessarily flustered by it all. So whether you're dealing with the unruly and and your, your temptation is to retaliate against them, you have to be willing to present the word of God and not your own personal offense. Or whether you're dealing with the faint-hearted and you're always having to pull them out of their funk and you think they're just a downer to be around all the time, you have to be patient to work with them. Or whether it's the weak and the immature who are just coming back to you again and again with the same issues. You have to be patient. You have to speak to them with the same patience that your heavenly Father deals with you. Be patient with all of them. This is what Paul did, you remember? 1 Thessalonians 2, when he was with them, he says he was like this nursing mother taking care of her own children, he says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not become a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And you are witnesses. And God also, How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul says, look, we were gentle among you. We were willing to lay down our life and we exhorted you. We admonished you. We encouraged you. We were willing to impart to you not just the gospel, but our whole life. This is what Paul's telling the church they have to do. You might think that your job is to show up here on a Sunday morning and sing a few songs and listen to a sermon, maybe be stirred a little bit or something like that and then go home. But that's not it. That's not it. For a spiritual, a growth environment, a church that has a culture of spiritual growth, it takes all of these elements from all of these people. Everyone contributing where the need arises. And all along the way, showing the kind of patience, the kind of love, the kind of mercy that God has shown to you. No other way around it. You can go plant yourself in a desert, you can go plant yourself in a swamp, but you won't have the kind of spiritual growth until you plant yourself in this kind of an environment. 
for a church to have a culture of spiritual growth, it leaders... Its leaders will need to equip the people to minister to one another and they'll need to minister to one another in the right way. And if you don't stay that way, if you don't always remind yourself of that, you will begin to see faltering, withering all around you. And worst of all, withering in your own life. Missed opportunities where God wants to grow you through this kind of ministry. Well, there are much more. We'll get to four more next week as we begin to move beyond this and begin to talk about the kind of worshipful attitude that we're required to have to have a culture of spiritual growth. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for these commandments. They remind us not only of our responsibilities that they really speak to us about the way you've dealt with us. You have rebuked us, disciplined us. You've dealt kindly with our weaknesses. You've lifted us during the seasons when we were downcast. What more could we want but then to turn around and to show the same love toward others? We pray that you would help us to do that as a church, as a congregation. Make us those who are willing to admonish, to encourage, to help, and to be patient. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.